welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome. Today on the show, I have Sandy Pollock, author of the book, Don't Leave a Mess. Now, the book is pretty much a estate planning book, but really talks about how to differentiate between the concepts of financial thinking and financial planning, because one is needed in order to effectively do the other. And with that, here's maybe with Sandy. Sandy, thanks for taking the time today. Thank you for inviting me, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here. My pleasure. So Sandy Pollock, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm originally from Montreal, a graduate of McGill University. I have been in the financial services world for over 35 years. I am a certified financial planner, a family enterprise advisor, a chartered life underwriter, as well as a whole bunch of other designations because I love learning and try to keep that knife as sharp as possible when it comes to being of assistance to the clients that I work with. And I have an advisory firm called Trimaran Advisory Group, where we work with business owners and high net worth individuals to help them make wise choices to protect what they've worked so hard to build. Okay, perfect. So basically, I brought you on the, the show to talk about your book and the work you've done in estate planning. So talk to me about talk to me about that. But specifically, let's talk about this entire estate thinking and planning thinking concept that you talk about in the book first. Well, I think, uh, Jason, to be very frank with you, We tend to be a species where we're always looking to find solutions. And if you are a business owner that wakes up every day with problems, and we're not talking about a problem, but many issues that you're constantly having to think on your feet and handle in order to grow your business and be what I would call a future thinker, it's very normal for when people consider estate planning that they want to do it as quickly and efficiently as possible. The challenge with that is that if you don't really think through the wealth that you've built, you can end up destroying the very thing that you have created. Because I'm a firm believer that building wealth, managing wealth, and transferring wealth are three separate things. Yeah, it's uh, my, I smile there a couple of a couple of comments you made there. It's the quick and efficiently as possible. It's like I find it hilarious, and and I guess you know people just don't know better. The entire like I need a will, so it's like I'm gonna go grocery shopping. Like it's this entire. I do love the entire. I I've been nagged by my advisor to do this forever. I know I need to do this forever. Okay, now I'm ready to do it. I want yes. I want it done yesterday. Like no, this is not. This is not a document. This is a process to arrive at a document. And that is a fundamental difference. And I've literally seen people like, well, this is taking so long. I'm like, yes, because we started asking questions and you had no answers. Rightly so, because you haven't started thinking about this, right? So, and as for your point about, about basically it is a way of destroying wealth. Oh, oh yeah. As let's just say the only people who benefit from a poorly organized estate are the lawyers. And whether that be people suing each other or not leaving an estate plan behind or any number of other things. I always say, if you if you want to if you want to destroy your wealth, don't take the time and create it. But if you also want to make your family hate you after you're gone, go ahead and leave a disorganized estate. Because heartbreaking to see, but countless times I've seen people just look at the person who just died, not longingly or with sorrow, 
but just mad. And and on some level, rightfully so. So, all right, talk to me about, we'll get into some horror stories along the way, I'm sure. But talk to me about like the first steps. Like what are the early impetuses to to actually getting this problem resolved? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with people's reticence to even think of putting a will together or planning their affairs. And there's many myths uh, that I uncover (laughs) and share in my book. The first big one is that if I don't write my will and plan my estate, I won't die. Or that if I do, that's what, oh, someone wrote a will, they died the next week. Oh, no, that's a bad omen. Exactly. Yes. It's exactly that. So that's number one. The other thing is that we all have how our relationship with money, how we grew up, someone it coined it money scripts. Sometimes we're taught it's not nice to talk about money. It's rude, Mm. right? So what is worse, not talking about money while you're alive or waiting for your family to be shocked with how much or how little there is in the complexity? And why I say this is because it's not about money not being important. It's what money does. And once a person understands their money script, understands what the value of money creates, it creates freedom, it creates charity, holidays, doing good for others, financial security. All of a sudden, when you start to unpack what money is, it's not such a terrible thing, right? And it's not such a horrible thing to discuss particularly with your life partner and your family. And I think what happens is we are conditioned, preconditioned, depending on how we grew up, that it's somewhat rude to discuss. So that's another reason why people don't like to plan their estates is because they don't even want to think about the magnitude of their wealth. And you have a generation, which is the baby boomers, that are surprisingly getting older. I I know it might be a shock to you, Jason, but every day... We are one year older than we were the year the day before. And understanding that events can happen, that I think that if you are prepared and if you have the courage, because it does take courage to actually sit back and look at what you have and what you want to do with it, and also get into sometimes some uncomfortable conversations about families and family dynamics, because every family is special and every family has its own unique relationships, challenges baggage, we'll call it, that needs to be addressed. Because it's not just about wasting the wealth away due to estate litigation, which can cost hundreds of thousands and sometimes millions of dollars. And we talk a little bit about that in the book, but it's what it does to your family members. And it ends up destroying families more than financially. But the whole purpose of a family is about unity and harmony, or at least that's the quest. You have very different personalities, but keeping the family together Usually it's that generation that creates the wealth that is the bind that holds them. And if they have not taken the necessary steps to A, understand what they have, what their tax obligations are, if they happen to walk out of life a little too soon, and how they want it distributed, it can actually destroy family relationships for generations to come. And that is totally unnecessary in my my humble opinion. All right, so we'll talk about what goes wrong later, but let's talk about so you so this is the this is the issue. Okay, so they finally reconcile that they want to do this, and you know I think for straightforward ones where there's one child that's going to get everything, no problem, right? Like I shouldn't say that actually because sometimes it's like I don't want to leave them that much, right? 
or or there's a business that maybe they're not capable of running. So let's talk about even what appears to be the simplest of situations where there's one error. Talk to me about like common pitfalls or issues that you see happen. And you know what, feel free to expand on multiple errors because frankly, it's gonna to touch upon them as well. Whether it's one or multiple, first of all, you have to take account what you have. It astounds me the number of successful entrepreneurs that don't even have a clue as to what their personal net worth is. And when they do, they are shocked. They thought they might be worth a couple of million when in fact it could be worth tens of millions and multiples thereof. So getting them to understand what comprises of their wealth is step number one. Step number two is understanding that there is maybe some illiquidity issues. And if you're talking about an entrepreneur in particular, our experience, and we deal with many successful family businesses and some that family members aren't involved, they tend to invest in whether it's inventory, reinvest in their business, real estate's a big one where they'll have a real estate portfolio. They're not so hot on RRSPs, but they realize they have to do it because they love the fact that they can save taxes. Again, a little tax strategy that they, mm -hmm. that's their mini fix that they get, but they never take the time. And it's probably a good thing is just to look at in a pie shape, where, where is your net worth? And when we sit down with our clients and show them that more often than not, 70% of their net worth is comprised of hard assets without any liquidity. And yep. that creates a significant tax obligation that they are not even aware of until it's too late. Well, what's interesting there too, is that people think it's, you know, it's, it's one, it can go one of two ways, either that A, they're not really aware of how much they have and they're like, this is a surprise. And then therefore they haven't thought about the tax bill or realized it was on the radar. But the other one is sometimes the delusion that they think it's worth a lot more. That's a big issue with a lot of entrepreneurs. Their baby is always top value, but mm, not necessarily. But but frankly, for for this exercise, we don't want it to be the highest possible multiple anyway. So not it's it's an easier conversation to say, well, maybe your business is not that worth that much because we're tax planning, right? Like that one, they're okay with. And I think they are when they have to look at the tax obligation. I think what they forget is that they have to look at will the business continue past them beyond their life. Yeah. And more often than not, they've never really taken that into account until there is an event that happens, um, unexpected diagnosis, a divorce. And all of a sudden, what they thought was, well, I was only pulling in $200,000 when in actual fact, the business was supporting a lifestyle that was much more in excess of that. And uh -huh. they had uh, different income splitting opportunities or, or things to actually use the business to maintain their lifestyle. So I think that sometimes it just takes it takes a curious kind of advisor to ask them, A, what their relationship with money is, what they have, why, understand their history of their wealth journey, why they started. Most entrepreneurs that we work with more than likely were one of two kinds of people. A, they were unemployable, or B, they thought that they could do better than their current boss, or they had an idea that they think would be better than anybody else's to give to the world or sell to the world and, and seize that opportunity. And I think that once you can connect their history and their story, and then ask them what they want to see happen, three, five, 10 years, what their relationship with their children are, how they feel about money. I mean, we're, we're working with a family right now who just sold a business the accountants did a phenomenal job of getting the deal together, taking care of all the paperwork and negotiation. I mean, they were just stellar, but no one asked them, would you like to take some of that tax that you have to pay? And we're talking seven figures and redirect that to a family foundation, to a community foundation. And they went, we can do that. 
So sure enough, we looped the accountant back in and said, look, we're looking at maybe making a million dollar gift to a foundation that will perpetuate the rich family history that they have as it relates to giving to the community, supporting certain areas that, that they are, that are very important to them. So the accountants went, oh, we never really thought of that. So sure enough, they come back with three different scenarios to show the difference in doing scenario one, two, or three. And we're about to present that to the client. It had nothing to do with buying anything. It had to do with thinking about how can you create something that will engage multiple generations. And and the interesting thing about this gift that I'm really excited about because I'm presenting it on Thursday is that it's going to connect the person that sold the business with their grandchildren. Because with a a gift of a million dollars that will spit out $50,000 a year, wouldn't it be nice to sit down with your grandkids and talk about charity and causes and have them present? And those are memories that will be seared into not just their brains, but their hearts. And that's what real wealth and legacy planning is about, is really about connecting families so that they stay together. And I think we forget that when we're doing our planning. I don't know if that so answers your question, Jason. It, it, but... it goes a different different direction. So you basically went down that path, and and like let's talk about other ways that you can potentially connect the generations across uh, across timelines with planning. So talk okay. to me what you what other tactics you've used. Okay, so we've had family meetings, particularly in family businesses with multi generations, and what we have been honored to do, I would say, because it really is an honor and a privilege is to have multiple generations sitting around a conference table and asking them, what's so special about this family? Knowing full well that there's been conflict, knowing full well that not everybody is everybody's best friend. And what comes out of that from each member, each generation is so rich that it also helps the wealth, call it the the wealth founder, the, the one who owns the majority of wealth plan what they have with more, they're turning significant wealth into significance. So whether that be using life insurance, using trusts, looking at corporate reorganizations, all that's the after stuff. But really what's key to any successful estate plan is thinking about what you want, why, and not always looking at it from a tax lens. Because your children or grandchildren are not tax deductions. They're actually human beings. And if they're not prepared- They can be both, but continue. They can be both, but they are human beings and they need to be prepared. They need to be prepared. And more often than not, you we're witnessing second and third generations that are not prepared for the magnitude of wealth that's being left. So then everybody's talking to them in a language that they don't understand instead of slowly supporting them so that they have the financial literacy and the tools that they need to have a life with intentionality, with a great future ahead, and also securing their own financial security and independence. So one tool is having families talk, discuss. We have, um, particularly in the family business arena, we have had families compose their mission statement. We've guided them Mm. to, which reflects not just their values, but the purpose and the number of business owners who feel a deep sense of responsibility to their employees and the families that they employ is astounding. It is absolutely astounding. It's not just about the wealth for their kids. They feel that they're part of a community. And the last thing they would want is to lose a business because 
of neglect or not planning properly because they realize that they have a responsibility, not just to the community that they live in, but to the families that they employ. So, so that's one way. The other way I think is about collaboration. And I think that there's, there's not enough, there's a lot of talk about cooperation, but there's very little collaboration. And when I say the cooperation, what I mean is me being nice to your professional advisors, whether they're accountants, whether they're lawyers, whether they're investment experts, insurance professionals, they never, you know, like it just means I'm going to be nice to you. You're going to be nice to me so that we get the job done. What happens in collaboration, which really is a totally different step to, to planning, is when you share information to the other professional advisors that will impact the advice that they give the client. And a good example, and I can share a story of a client who's, you know, we had a tax lawyer, we had, we had a tax lawyer, an accountant, myself and my client, and this person had uh, a lot of wealth, a lot of real estate, and the tax lawyer was talking about how they could freeze the value of the assets and then push everything into this spousal trust, right? And then when she died, the kids would get it. The only problem with that, as my client was squirming in his chair, was that this was a second marriage. So the first marriage, his goal was that he wanted his children from the first marriage to get the bulk of the wealth, also mm-hmm. to leave a percentage to his second wife because mm-hmm. he loved her very much. And all that the tax uh, lawyer saw was defer, 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 and the account was divide, divide, divide. So yeah. I took them both out for lunch. And I explained to them that there was a balance between control and tax. And you could have some tax leaking out and you could solve that with life insurance, with corporately owned life insurance, but still mm-hmm. gave the amount of control that the client wanted. Yeah. So sure enough, they, re- they went back to their plans. And what was interesting was the accountant who said, Sandy, this has been your client for two and a half years. I have known this client for 25 years and you know more about his life and the relationships and the complexity than I do. So thank you very much. They went back to the drawing board. They made an amazing plan that included trust, that included freezes, but that gave the client control. And, yeah. and everybody was happy in the end. Yeah, Almost. It's, it's, it's funny. I, I say, you know, the old two man with a hammer, everything's a nail, right? Of course, they're looking at it from that lens. And it's when, you know, these are the things that are chuckle when people say, well, I have an account. What do you need a planner for? It's like, you think that those roles are the same thing. That's interesting. They're not, right? And it is... Absolutely. You ask a lawyer, you know, what you need to do. They're looking from that lens. You look, you ask a, a accountant, you're looking from that lens. But the reality is, is that as go back to what you said about as humans, we like to solution everything. Problem is we do that before we define the problem properly. And there was a perfect example of, of the problem was not defined properly and it was easily solvable, but you had to zoom out to, to actually know what it was you were trying to fix. And it wasn't a tax bill. It wasn't. And yet at the same time, the planning wasn't done, Jason. It wasn't complete because the next thing was how do you share your planning with your children and your spouse? And you know what? We all have a readiness time. And this person wasn't ready because he came from very humble beginnings. His wealth amounted to close to a hundred million. And he did and whenever we would do a review, he would say, that's not me. <laughs> Cause he's this very humble individual, keeps a very low profile, very quiet wealth. And I went, I didn't say that it's you, but you own this. And there's a responsibility as to what you want to do with it. So let's talk. He wasn't ready to share this. And, and, they, and his children were not spoiled. His children 
very responsible, living within their means. Like everything was, you know, there was no reason for a little red flag to go up, except that there's always the X, right? That's in the in the background. So I said, uh, well, look, if you're not ready, why don't we just write a letter? Why don't we write a letter to your children and a letter to your second spouse as to why you've organized your affairs this way and, and what your thoughts were? And we ended up having two very, I don't even know what the word to describe, transformational conversations about how he grew up when he came to Canada what it was like when he started his business, the hours that he had to put in in the initial years, the divorce, his love for his children, his love for his second wife. And so we we helped him put together two letters. He'd updated his wills, very legalese. There was no dear or beloved in those documents, unfortunately. And we we put in his words, listening to him, a letter to each so that that would in some way avoid estate litigation. Fast forward 10 years later, and now it's time to have that family meeting. And we've had an opportunity to meet with um, the children to talk about how they felt about the relationship with their dad, how they were with each other. And then the next step, of course, and we still haven't got to it, is to meet the second wife. And, and there's a fear. There's a fear. And it's understandable. And yet there is something about relationships and love that is so powerful that sometimes we forget. We forget and we think that we're going to do harm when in actual fact, by having these conversations, it makes families have clarity. It makes them understand each other better. And it also tightens uh, those bonds instead of severing them. So again, sharing, we had shared our report with both the accountant and the lawyer. So they knew the family dynamics. They knew the, the family tree. I mean, we do some very comprehensive planning and it made it easier, A, to implement the plan. But 10 years later, it's not relevant anymore and it's not sustainable. So he's got to take the dust off and open it. And we'll see how that goes. There's no guarantees. So let's talk about the obstacles encountered in the middle of it. So people often start these processes, start getting hit with questions never thought about, and then the family dynamics issues come out of it. Talk to me about some of the more common ones you see. And, and like we can talk about not necessarily solutions, but tactics on how we can be addressed. So... There are two different scenarios. One scenario is a family business enterprise, and one is just someone that has been uh, either inherited wealth or built wealth, sold their business, and now it's a question of what to do with it. So you tell me which one you want me to discuss, Jason, and I'll go from there. Let's go with the first one. Go ahead and we'll do the second one. First one, family business? Family business. Okay. So for family business, when we begin an engagement, we have what's called a discovery process where we have meetings with all the family members, the key players in the business, like the CFO, CEO, and the children, to find out a little bit more about the family, their role, their future, their thoughts, and we come up with major themes. Once we've addressed major themes, for example, most entrepreneurs have this desire to reinvest in their business in order to grow it. And they continue to play this song, this tune, for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, which is why you have so much wealth that's a liquid. So then we come up with themes, okay, do we harvest? Is it now the time? And so is it growth? Are we ready to grow the business or harvest? Another theme that we come up with is letting go, you know, and mentoring. Do they continue to control or do they let go? Do they look at different planning? Do they invite their children into the planning? So that discovery, which can take hours, right? We have lots of interviews. We come up with 
um, many themes. And then we ask the client, okay, we'll come up with themes like, first of all, uh, we have one client right now where there is a capital gains obligation in excess of 25 million. Okay, do you want to address that now? We also have mentorship for next generation. Do you want to address that? Communication. There's no communication between. And we don't do it all for our clients, but we, I, I look at planning somewhat like going on a freeway. And so you're going to have people that come on the off ramps, come on the on ramps. And depending on where the client wants to go, we're able to bring, if necessary, other professionals on. And so if they say, oh, my God, I didn't realize that I had this tax obligation. Okay, Sandy, that's really painful. Why don't we work on that? So we go through, you know, what financial independence looks like for them. Um, do they want to continue working? What's the lifestyle? What's the relationship with the spouse? And we tend to draw a story from them as to what they want, why they want it, so that they can then make some what I would call informed decisions. Dealing with the tax obligation, you know, they may do some regular estate freezes, reorganizations of the company, and then they might consider what their options are to fund the tax. So one option might be just to spend all those, spend all the money, right? And you have no tax. And I tell that to my clients. I say, there is a 100% foolproof way of paying 0% tax. And they, they say, really? And I say, oh, yeah. And they say, how? And I say, give everything to charity. Give your homes, your businesses, your cars, just give it all away and go on government assistance. You'll get two, possibly three meals a day, a bed, but you won't pay any taxes. So you can go to that plan or you can keep what you've built and and prepare what you've built in a way that reflects your values, your vision, as well as a tax effective plan. So then we explore funding, we explore saving money to pay tax, we discuss double taxation on death, they look at insurance, which sometimes can be a very interesting tool because it provides liquidity when you need it the most to at least buy time and pay taxes at uh, pennies on the dollar. We look at engaging their other advisors We also help our clients. This is uh, something that we've just implemented in the last two years, which is a legacy letter so that they have something beyond the gift that they leave their families. And I think that that is almost like their moral and financial compass that they hope will transcend other generations. So we do work in that area as well. So once we've come up with all these themes, we ask them where they want to start because usually there's at least three, if not eight different issues that have to be addressed. And we're not there to coach them. I am not a coach. I am their guide. All right. When you go on a trip, you say, I want to go here or I want to go there. And the guy says, okay, now we'll make up a plan. And this idea of the quarterback, it's not about the quarterback. It's about uh, collaboration. It's about communication and transparency. And I think as any kind of advisor, whether it be legal, tax, insurance, financial, The key to truly serving your client is to take your ego, gently, gently, ever so gently, place it in your back pocket and ask the clients interesting questions to help them and guide them so they can make the right decisions with clarity and confidence. And I think that we forget that because there's so many great solutions out there, but the client has to have their own self-discovery and prioritize in order to even be open and receptive to addressing those solutions. And the family business enterprise world is very complex and it requires many professionals from uh, counselors to coaches, mentors. I mean, the list goes on. So, so that's that. Does that answer that question? It's a big question. I think it does. I think it does. So, okay. So we answered that question. 
so I mean, it's funny because I was thinking along the way, it's just, if anything, all the stuff the accountants and lawyers focus on is actually the easy part of this equation, right? Because once you understand what it is you're trying to accomplish, it's just a matter of, there's only so many tricks for how we're going to accomplish that. Sometimes you can't accomplish what they want to accomplish, right? But you can get as close to it as possible. And I think it's too often, it's uh, it, as usual, it's, it's, it's looking for, it's looking for the, the thing that solves a problem. People are used to paying for things, documents, whatever else it is, as opposed to what is the actual strategy. And, or, uh, you know, the logistics of it are important. Don't get me wrong. They're absolutely necessary. But if you're not pointing the right direction, it's a disaster. All right. So basically, uh, we've gone through, got through that piece of it. Let's talk about the ones who didn't basically have businesses. This is just inherited wealth, right? That's a very different relationship because if you don't create it on your own with your, you know, starting from nothing story, your view of money is, is different. So talk to me about how that impacts the estate planning process. Another great question, Jason. So that requires a little reflection because it depends on how much the inheritance is. The size of the inheritance is key. Sometimes people that receive significant wealth consider themselves, if they're prepared, stewards of wealth. And what I mean by stewards of wealth is this was a gift. This was a gift which perhaps came from my parents to soften the edges of life, right? Yep. Soften the edges, make things a little more comfortable. And I would like to ensure that if I happen to use this money through because of longevity risks, because of investment, whatever the case may be, or using it, right, to, to live my lifestyle, that if I want to replenish it, what do I need to consider? So those are the stewards that they receive. And I'm assuming this is just plain cash because real estate's very different. The second kind of thinking is, okay, how do I introduce this? to my children, what we have, why we have it, and teach them financial literacy. I, I've got a new word for it, which I call financial fluency. And it's helping young people get through all the clutter and noise. And I think most of the clutter that we see, I hate to say this, is through social media. There's so much misinformation out there. The banks- You mean Canada doesn't have an estate tax? What are you talking about? Sorry. <laughs> exactly. Countered on exactly. a daily basis. Oh, do you really? Well, there you go. Or, well, or, or even credits, yeah. credit cards. Yeah. There, you know, the banks are teaching young children at university. You'll see, I mean, I remember this. I, I was giving a talk on, it was financial planning week and they wanted to talk about money and marriage. And they asked me to give a, a discussion on it. It was kind of fun, a little cheeky. And as I'm leaving, there are all these tables and there's all these banks. And one of them has uh, piggy banks that they're giving away. So you get a piggy bank and here is an application for a credit card. So think about that. Those think aren't about, the same thing. Sorry. Well, yeah, exactly. exactly. Aren't they the same thing? So all of a sudden you've got this disconnect of saving and spending. Or when you're talking to younger people and they say, well, no, the bank says I should only pay the minimum because it's good for my credit rating, which is such misinformation when they're paying 27%. Who told them that? This is real. This is real. What's happening? And we're talking about these are young, young people that are being misinformed because of all the noise. So I think that the first thing is I think every parent has a responsibility to teach their children about saving, about spending, about sharing, about tools are out there. What is an investment? What is a stock? What is a bond? What, you know, why do people buy homes? What's a mortgage? And I think that we have really, I, I've seen it more often than not, a lot of young adults that are not prepared. And I think it's up to a parent to 
teach children grit, teach children about waiting, about long term, that you can't always make 50% in one year, one month, one day through day trading. I mean, there's so much misinformation out there. Oh, and I think that yeah. it, it's really important that we have those conversations. And, and part of what's in the book is not just about how to, but it's really about reflecting and thinking. And there are, um, there are questions, there's tools, there's lists that make it so easy. But you know what's interesting, Jason, is easy things are never easy. No, no. <laughs> and we have to just accept that fact that easy things, difficult things sometimes are easier than easy things. I, and I will say two things about young people and money. One, having taught at university, I am often struck by the level of delusion around a couple of things. A, starting salaries, quite amazing. Like I would think you would look that up before you actually enroll in a, in a, in a in a program, but most don't. And when I put those up on screen, people are deflated. Lifetime earnings, really, the number of people, it's amazing what they think they're gonna be making five years out, just not the thing. And yeah, sometimes like, and realistic investment returns. I remember one time someone basically, because we, the program, like they had a project where they signed up for a robo-advisor and would chart what happened on a weekly basis because I wanted to show them how boring it was when they did it in the balanced portfolio. And one person legitimately said, you know, I thought I'd be able to double my money every year and be a billionaire by whatever age. And just like, I'm like, do you legitimately believe that the reason people aren't billionaires is for lack of the bare minimum effort required? Like, like, is this what legitimately we are leading people to believe? And I get it. In the absence of any other information, their mind will make whatever assumptions they're going to make. Right. But so it was very, it's a very stark class for a lot of these kids. They just really, they never really have thought about it in those terms and seeing realities, unfortunately, a cold splash of water on their face. The other thing I'm going to go back to and talk about inherited wealth, and you said about stewardship. You're absolutely right. I, I think the, the, the big, the largest legacies I've seen left behind and some of the dynastic fortunes I've been privileged enough to know, meet people who are, who are beneficiaries of, what really struck with me, and I've seen a lot of these things go wrong, but the ones that went right, what really struck me was the fact that they saw it as not theirs. It was like this thing that was given to them that they are to take care of that will enable the next generations to benefit, but they needed to contribute it to it. They needed to take care of it, but they sure as heck weren't going to spend it down. And it was just, I got to say, I don't think, I don't think that that is a, that conclusion is ever arrived at without a lot of conditioning for a client, for, for a kid to understand that that is their role when it comes to familial wealth. And so I think it's one of those things. Absolutely. That is, that is something that is, a great so anyone who's got who's got wealth and wants to pass it down and make sure it's going to basically be treated with, you know with the utmost respect and benefit as many generations forward as possible that is definitely the approach you got to take but that's not an approach you can teach them at the 11th hour that is something that has to be conditioned from an early age right and maybe you don't have that wealth early on so it's difficult maybe you came up with nothing yourself and don't want them to basically suffer well unfortunately it's hardship that makes people resilient you know you can't get a diamond without pressure Right. So it's uh, oftentimes spoil oftentimes giving them everything is often is just training them that it is there to be spent and gone. Now, if you want that, that's fine. But if you expect it to to, to outlive you and outlive them, it's different. I, I think there's more to impact than than the idea of stewardship. I think there are emotional factors as well. There's guilt, there's shock that have to be unpacked when we're looking at estate planning. And I think that we have to change how we talk about it. And what I mean by that, Jason, is it's not about passing wealth down. It's passing wealth to. Yeah. And those words are powerful. 
because it's like a baton. If you're in a relay race, it's about taking that baton and passing it on to the next person. The other thing we have to be mindful of is not everybody has to pass on their wealth. They can give it away. I know situations yeah. where people have, you know, inherited significant wealth and they've started their own foundations. They live, they live a nice lifestyle, but they're giving it all away and they're giving it away with purpose. And they need help in defining what that purpose is, what causes are important. We talk a little bit about that as well in the book is understanding that you have to spend some, well, you have to save some, spend some and share some. And those are the three keys to earning wealth, managing wealth, perpetuating wealth, transferring wealth. And people, there's a lot of people that don't understand that, that money has good attributes to it and can do exceptional things. And whether it's being involved in uh, eradicating hunger, encouraging literacy for those that are disadvantaged, providing scholarships and a, a bigger future, that in itself deserves conversation, not just about the money, but what it can do. And once you get past the financial security and the independence, it can be quite powerful. Absolutely. So before we wrap up, I want to uh, give you the opportunity to provide any last thoughts or words of encouragement for people who are facing this and where to, I guess, how to best start is the way to really look at it. I think the first thing that you want to do, I mean, there's no best way to start, quite frankly. I mean, get the book. Uh, how, you know, don't leave a mess. We have, uh, that's available on Amazon, all the different, what is it called, mediums. Uh, we mm -hmm. have it in Audible. We have it in hardcover, softcover. We also have a website, www.dontleaveamess.ca, where we put up articles. We're doing speaking engagements, number of podcasts. This as one of them. And thank you, Jason, for this opportunity. I am really hoping that this book will be an industry transformer. And what I mean by that is not just in the financial services industry, but I'm talking about legal and accounting so that people that have worked so hard to build what they have built can transfer that with intentionality and wisdom. Excellent. So Sandy, thank you so much for your time. Where can people find you? www.dontleaveamess.ca. That would be Excellent. the best. And you don't even have to put an apostrophe on there. Excellent. And I want to thank you, Jason. This has been a uh, share. It's been a real delight. Thank you for making me think a little harder than normal. And I just wish you continued success with your practice and your podcast. Thank you. And you with your book. So that was today's interview with Sandy Pollock. Hope you enjoyed that. And this is something you're interested in learning more about. By all means, please pick up the book. Until next time, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.